My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. This is a bit of a different episode because today we are not talking about mining, we're talking about oil and gas. Specifically, we're talking about shipping oil. My guest today is a gentleman named RJ Loyans. He is the co-founder and CEO of an oil shipping company called Moliner Shipping. And RJ has been doing this since I believe 2012. He started his career as an actual seaman working aboard ships, and then he worked his way up uh, through that ecosystem and then got into working with commodity traders, specifically oil and gas commodity traders, and helping them actually move product all over the world until he went out with a partner and started his own company. So now they manage a fleet of ships transporting oil all over the globe, and it was a really, really cool conversation. And if you're anything like me, you probably know next to nothing about shipping, but it is a lot like the mining industry. It is highly cyclical, it's very risky, and there are fortunes to be made and lost in very short time periods. Now, RJ has spent his whole career in this space, and he's had a tremendous amount of success and has some really great insight into not only how the oil and gas industry works, the transportation of product, but also how commodity traders work and how all these really interconnected pieces fit together. I had a really good time talking to him. Shipping has been a business that I have been curious about for a really long time. And I can't, I just can't say enough about how much I learned in this conversation. I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening that is interested in natural resources in general and anyone who wants to get a better understanding of how these things actually move around the globe uh, what are the costs what are the risks what are the opportunities associated with that and just to get a better understanding of how all the pieces of this sort of global commodities natural resource ecosystem fits together so Without further ado, let me please introduce RJ Lyons from Moliner Shipping. RJ, how are you today? Great, Jamie. How are you? Good. So welcome to the Resource Insider Podcast. Typically what we're talking about on this show and who we're talking to are people in the mining sector and about mining entrepreneurs and financiers. But today we're going to be chatting about something a little bit differently. We're going to be talking about shipping and particularly oil and gas shipping, about you and your company, Moliner Shipping. So I suspect this is going to be very new to a lot of our listeners. But for those out there who haven't heard about you before, haven't heard about the company, can you give us a 30,000 foot look at what you guys do? Sure. So Molner Shipping is a ship management and uh, pooling operator. That means that we uh, manage the assets on behalf of others, uh, ship owners, uh, private companies, public companies, 
but also will lease vessels on behalf of investors that we have in uh, special purpose vehicles. And we take mm -hmm. all of those ships, we put them into one big pot of, uh, of vessels traded as one fleet. We average the result and the ships are able to have different economic interests, but trade as one, one cohesive fleet. And that allows a number of ships, which are of a similar variety, to trade in different geographic regions in the world, the Far East, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and get exposures to the global market where one owner or one particular investor may only have you know, enough uh, capital to have one ship or uh, the equivalent fraction of a ship. They're able to get a composite exposure to the global market. And we've grown this company from starting as a exclusive broker or a, an agency where we were performing services on the behalf of owners to a more complex structure where we're financing a, a number of things on owners' behalfs and finance the cargo for the people who would charter the ships from the owners. And you know we've, uh, we've set it up to be a, a holistic transportation uh, asset light service provider for ship owners and uh, cargo movers in the market. So this is something that I've known pretty much nothing about. And we got put in touch through a mutual friend and colleague of ours who was, I believe, one of the early, uh, one of the first investors in your company. And he got telling me a bit about what you guys were doing. I said I wanted to learn more and he put us in touch for, for this conversation. So something I'd like to know and like to understand better. So what differentiates, so first of all, you guys, you only ship oil, right? Crude oil, is that correct? Or am I off on that? Uh, crude oil and refined products. So, you know, crude oil, uh, but also dirty fuels, such, you know, residual fuels that a ship would burn. But also we have uh, vessels that will move gasoline, jet fuel, diesel. Um, you don't want to put... Uh, you know, gasoline in a ship with just loaded crude oil on it. So generally those two types of ships are uh, in their own trades. Dirty mm -hmm. tankers carry dirty petroleum products, crude oil, okay. fuel oil, and clean tankers, which have coatings on their tanks so that they're able to uh, better handle uh, petroleum. Clean products uh, are in the clean trade. Okay. We do both. And you're operating all over the world now, but did you start out your career in shipping or did you start it out in trading, uh, commodity trading, particularly oil and gas? So my background was originally uh, as a ship's officer. I was sailing, I went to one of the U.S. Uh, federal academies, Merchant Marine Academy, and uh, you get out with a ship's officer license. I was mm -hmm. sailing on board the vessels for a number of years and transitioned uh, into one of the uh, shoreside positions as a commercial operator, um, dealing with the shore-based activity of arranging the activity for the ships which were out in the ocean for one of the publicly traded um, oil tanker companies that was based in New York. And from there, um, got more involved in the commercial side of shipping. Um, arranging the operations for the vessels, then moving into a commercial role, and, and then transitioning over into the commodity side. When you work for a ship owner or a, uh, the owners of ships, 
you're really selling transportation. The other mm -hmm. side of that is buying transportation, which is more of the commodity trade side. So transitioned over into the buy side of chartering vessels in, which is you know the purchasing of transportation um, for a uh, commodity trader and transportation uh, company. So this is something I've always always been curious about. How do commodity traders tend to address the, the shipment of goods? Do they ever own their own vessels? Do they contract a firm like yours typically? Uh, what is the sort of the standard procedure for, for how these bigger firms work or how these traders work? The, the answer to that is everyone does it slightly differently. So okay. you have fully integrated firms, um, which would be oil companies, the, the oil majors you might know, uh, Exxon, Shell, all of the big guys who are able to produce oil. They might own ships, ship it on their own ship, bring it to their own refinery. Um, then you have uh, commodity trading houses, which may just be purchasing the goods at the origin, needing to market or ship them to different regions where they're looking to place uh, the barrels and they can own their own ships or they'll spot charter them or they'll uh, create a bit of a hybrid uh, contract, which is called a time charter. So when you're securing transportation, you can call up the ship owner or call up the commercial controller of the vessel and say, I would like to go to, from A to B and they'll give you a price similar to how you might order a taxi and say, I want to go from my house to the airport and they'll give you a price. And that's called a spot charter. You're saying, I want to go from this spot to this spot. Mm -hmm. You can also charter the vessels under longer term leases. And the leases can be for 30 days, they can be for six months, they can be for a year at a time, where instead of telling the owner, I wanna move from A to B, you say, I would like to lease your vessel under a time charter for a period of time. And when I have the vessel from you, you're still in control of the crew captain and you're still responsible for running the vessel, but I'll agree to pay you a daily rate for that vessel and then I'll incur all of the fuel expenses. I'll incur the expenses where uh, I take the ship and I send it to A and then I send it to B myself. Right. So you're able to compare that buildup of costs as the cargo mover versus just getting a price to you as a whole number from A to B. So and, and when you lease one of these things, are you able to send it? anywhere in the world that you wish or anywhere within a region? How does, how does that typically work? Uh, these will be commercially negotiated terms. So sanctions areas, these other types of things are off limits to anyone that's trading in the international market. But generally, uh, there's something called the World uh, Institute Warranty Limits. And it'll, it'll be generally the, the entire world and they'll say you can trade anywhere within the warranty limits um, except specific ports or specific regions which have been sanctioned or are just, uh, are just not allowed to go. And they'll be, you know, uh, North Korea, places like that. And then there might be specific ports that the owner of the vessel has had bad experiences with because they don't have confidence in the local navigational uh, charts 
or mm -hmm. they don't believe that you know the inland waterways are as safe as the deep water so they might say you know you can go to this area but you can't go any further inland than a certain bridge or a certain landmark or a certain buoy okay and uh, is that a common scenario that there's these places in the world that it's considered I guess unsafe or unreliable to, to ship in and then there, are there well, it, maybe it, it's smaller so companies that fill that niche well it, it's really more dependent on the ship size you got to remember you know these vessels which are moving from continent to continent are generally very large if you put them on their side they would be as high as you know the the tallest buildings in any major metropolitan city so mm -hmm. When one of these vessels, a uh, 300,000 barrel ship up to a 2 million barrel ship is laden with cargo in the water, they're underneath the surface anywhere from 35 to 40 feet on the smaller side up to 65 to 70 feet on the, the larger side. So when you're dealing with that depth of water underneath the surface, you need really deep water for these vessels to safely navigate. So it really comes down to how confident are the owners of the vessel with the depth of water and the different places where they might be requested to go because these aren't paved roads under, you know, under these rivers and under these channels. There's, there's silting, there's sediment. There's a, there's always a, a changing of, you know, what's, what's beneath that water. So when you're in the ocean and you've got, you know, hundreds of feet of water, that's not as much of an issue. It's when you've got a very large vessel, which is constrained in its ability to maneuver, uh, going into very uh, potentially shallow areas, which is where they start to say, I don't want you to go any further than this. I don't have a high degree of confidence in, right. you know, uh, that's that's so, really more the nature of it. So what um, instigated your shift from being on the buy side, working for a trader, to going out and starting your own business and I guess acting as a, uh, or servicing traders and, and other clients such as that? Well, well, originally our activity started as a complement to a, uh, to a, a trading activity that uh, myself and, my ex-colleague, you know, who also was part of founding the business, um, were part of. And, you know, when you are moving cargoes, these are large, uh, large transactions, you know, a million barrel shipment um, to move it from A to B, you're, you're hiring uh, people to bring the vessel into the port, you're chartering a lot of vessels, you're consuming a lot of services. We started the company during a period after the financial um, crash in the early, you know, 2010s, mm -hmm. where there, the tanker market was very, very weak. It had crashed just like a, a number of other markets. And just having cargo to move was almost a, a currency in itself. It was, there was no volatility in rates. Everyone was operating at or below their um, OPEX break-evens. So just having the certainty of having cargoes was, mm -hmm. it, was its own you know, beneficial business to, to be part of. 
So because we were chartering so many ships um, and owners were so in need of vessels, it wasn't a matter of rate, it was a matter of utilization. Uh, we approached uh, some companies that we had been working closely with and said, you know, we have the cargoes um, and we can charter the vessels, but we can schedule them more effectively if we have control of them, if we don't need to pick up the phone every time, you know, we need to um, look for another opportunity. So uh, it was a arrangement that, you know, certain people that we were working with liked, and we started to create a really good rate of return on uh, the ships compared to the market. So that was the, the origin of how we got into it. And it was really more opportunistic. It was, it was uh, the right time in the market where there was a, a bit of a, a hole to fill. The larger um, companies that were existing in the space were, were very heavy, uh, heavily focused on generating fees where our model was more towards charging little if, if no fees, but, um, but participating in the upside that we generated when we outperformed the market or our peer group. So it was a little bit of a different pricing model and it was uh, really the right time in the market. So you're basically going to the owners of these vessels and saying, look, we've got an organization in place that can maximize utilization, keep these ships moving, keep them full, keep them going. Is that kind of the value proposition that you brought? It, it is. And, and with a little bit uh, more of a, an emphasis on a holistic view of the market where in shipping, there's, there's two ways to, to gain efficiency. It's either through scale and just saying, we're going to have so much scale that we're able to rateably uh, buy things better than anyone else, fuel, port services, um, and we'll have a rateable exposure and we'll be so big that everyone will call us when they need uh, to, move a, to move a cargo. Or you can create efficiency by having uh, better depth into the full cycle of a transaction. Meaning that if you have a better sense of what's going on in the physical cargo market, which is where uh, the demand for shipping is actually coming from, you'll have a better view of how to position and market the fleet of vessels that you have. So something that isn't as um, known to people that are outside of the commodity markets on the waterborne uh, transportation element of it is the physical transaction, the, the barrels, the buying, the selling of crude oil or uh, jet fuel or gasoline off it's happened well ahead of the period that owners would naturally be marketing their ships for employment. So uh, when an owner is marketing their ship and saying, I'm going to uh, go try and get my next voyage, they might only do it five or 10 days before their vessel is going to be free of cargo. So when they're willing to sell, or they're willing to place that vessel in its next piece of employment, it might be for uh, dates that are 20 to 30 days out ahead of today's date. So a, right. a ship that's going to 
be free of cargo in China in five days, a VLCC, it's going to take that vessel 22 days to ballast back to the Middle East. So that owner might start showing dates to say, I'll be willing to load in 30 days in the, in the Middle East. That transaction for the, the barrels to be sold and purchased on those dates generally happens two months prior. So the, the barrels that someone might load in 30 days was a transaction that happened 30 days ago. And there's mm-hmm. a, a bit of a phase shift between when the ships are marketed or the transportation is secured and the actual physical commodity transaction takes place. So did you guys sort of fill that gap by giving these longer timeframes so that when the transaction is actually taking place, they can have certainty on the shipping and the dates and the, the costs associated with that at, at that moment? Or how, how has that worked? So it was twofold. One, because of our commodity trading background, having worked in the commodity trading activity, we knew the people to talk to or the markets to monitor so that we could see what transactions were taking place in the forward market to better position ourselves to know, okay, well, there's a gigantic ARB right now moving from Asia to the Americas or vice versa because the pricing benchmarks are always moving. And you might not get every single detail on every single transaction, but you're saying this is going to suck a lot of vessels from region A to region B, and there's gonna be a shortage of vessels in region A because the ship owners are not going to be as cognizant of the order of magnitude of vessels that are going to depart because the trading economics are just overwhelming the incremental cost in transportation right now. So is this would, not something that the average shipping company is, is cognizant of or, or taking advantage of? And similar to how you, you know, you asked earlier, how are most companies set up on the commodity side? There's generally an integrated approach where you have a trading aspect, you have a transportation and you have a, you know, an upstream or a downstream. So there are integrated companies and they generally are the trading houses or the, uh, the oil majors. Ship mm-hmm. owners and ship marketers generally only occupy a single vertical, which is their long transportation and they want to sell transportation for the highest possible you know, rate. They don't have access based on the market that they're in to that forward market just because they're not trading those goods. Mm-hmm. So because we were cognizant of the fact that that's when the real transactions that are taking place, we also will market our vessels out further than our competitors because Got we it. know that's when they are really the most useful uh, for cargo movers or charters to know their transportation economics because there's uncertainty and there's an inherent uncertainty premium that comes, uh, you know, embedded in the transaction when someone says, I need to commit to this today, but I'm still going to be exposed to variation in my price inputs for another 30 days. If you can help mitigate that, 
um, you're able to achieve a little bit more of a premium because it's generally less than the uncertainty premium someone's putting on it. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, what on average, if you're a trading house that doesn't have uh, integrated shipping, you're, you're using a third-party contractor, what is the cost of shipping uh, like as a percentage of the profits that they would make on a trade? Is it a, how meaningful is the impact of this, I guess, on the actual traders? Well, the modern day commodity trading, at least in oil, you know, it's, it's not really um, done in whole dollar terms. You know, no one says I'm going to buy oil for $50 and I'm going to sell it for 55. Um, Generally uh, liquids, you know, gasoline, crude, it's formula based and they pick benchmarks and it's generally the regional benchmark where they're uh, buying, they're producing the crude or they're selling the crude. You know, WTI is a major benchmark. Uh, that's generally when people say in, you know, North and South America, what's the price of crude? They're referencing the front month contract of WTI. In Europe, they might reference Brent. In the Far East, they might reference uh, Dubai. So. When people are buying and selling cargo, they're referring to the price they're paying as the benchmark with a premium or a discount. So, mm-hmm. you know, just like if you were buying a, a bottle of water and, you know, the, in where I'm from, New York, there's everyone buys Poland spring water and maybe a, a bottle of that's a dollar. And then there's better water, which might be, uh, you know, Pellegrino, you know, mineral water. So instead of Pellegrino being $2 and Poland Spring being $1, the price of Pellegrino is expressed as Poland Spring plus $1. Mm -hmm. And this is the way people buy and sell the commodities. So generally, um, the, the price outright of the commodity, whether it's 55 or $60, um, the differentials that people are buying at the origin, and selling uh, the the commodity for where they're delivering it is largely based on transportation as well as supply and demand. So it the transportation in terms of the you know the the available margin in a transaction is actually quite significant because you've almost eliminated the uh, the outright price of of the futures contract or the 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 index from the transaction. Okay. As I understand it, I mean, shipping can be a very, very volatile business. Uh, You know, I know the prices of ships are kind of like commodities in themselves and they can fluctuate uh, massively uh, at different times, given sort of macroeconomic outlooks and what's going on in the world. What are, what are some of the factors that impact this volatility and you know, what, where is that coming from? Is it largely tied to the price of commodities? Is it just tied, uh, I guess, traditionally just to demand? Um, how is that being uh, affected by what's going on in the world? I mean, it's a few things. One, it's the purest form of supply and demand. Um, you know, these are uh, generally voice brokered or direct negotiation transactions. So, you know, 
if there's two cargoes in one ship, uh, prices go up. If there's two ships and one cargo, prices go down. Um, but shipping as a, a, an industry is really uh, three types of, uh, of businesses kind of stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, these are, these are large uh, industrial assets. And they are, it, there's an element of shipping which is very much like real estate, where it's a project, um, you know, a long-term uh, investment. It's amortized over the usable life and um, it's financed, you know, 60-40 or, or something, you know, depending on what's available from the banks. Um, and certain participants in the market look at it that way. They say, I want to buy this $100 million ship today. I know I'll be able to scrap it in 25 years or 15 years or 20 years. And based on a 10-year contract, a time charter, or a different type of uh, employment scheme, I'll be able to make X rate of return. Those are one type of participant in the market. Then there are other participants in the market which say, I want pure exposure to volatility. And they'll buy a ship, speculating on the fact that they'll be able to buy a ship at a point in the, in the cycle of the market when rates have been very low and it's brought the implied values of vessels down. And they'll be able to buy low, operate the vessel in the market, when it's, uh, when it's more volatile, there's um, bigger swings in earnings, and then either take the ship all the way and scrap it or resell it into the secondhand market when they've been able to uh, achieve an appreciation in the asset price, plus um, make a, uh, you know, the earnings in the interim. And then there are people in the market which are... Uh, in this market because they're cargo movers. And they say, I wanna lease vessels for a period of time because I have actual demand and I wanna move it from A to B. So you've got long-term players, shorter-term speculative players, and then people that are in the market because they have actual demand to move the goods. Right. And then all of the things globally that overlay on that. So where are we in the market today? Uh, is shipping cheap? Is it expensive? What, what are we looking at in terms of historic averages? So if you look at the period, you know, if you look at the last five years, the last 10 years, the last 20 years, um, this past year has been fairly, fairly weak until and uh, the last two or three weeks when it became super volatile uh, and rates went up tenfold. VLCCs, which are 2 million barrel ships, went from making, uh, in the spot market, the equivalent of $30,000 a day to $325,000 a day uh, within the span of 14 days. Um, the leasing markets uh, generally move slower and uh, the leasing markets for the last year or so have been not as low as they were the prior year, but definitely lower than they've been for you know the last five to ten years. There's been an expectation um, in these shipping markets that uh, 
the year 2020, which comes with it a, a big step down in the allowable sulfur in marine fuels is going to cause increased running costs, which is going to create larger freight rates and generally was going to increase volatility. And owners of vessels uh, like volatility, they like uncertainty because it's what makes people want to secure ships and purchase transportation, uh, mm -hmm. have generally been optimistic about the future. Um, so relative, their optimism is that, you know, the, the current market was, was cheaper than it was going to be. And as a company that's, that's leasing vessels, this is beneficial to you guys as well, right? If you're getting in, if you're leasing a vessel, presumably at a cheaper rate in these volatile markets, hopefully you can ride the increased profits up. Is that ideally how that would work? Yeah. And, you know, the thing about shipping it's it's almost the opposite of the commodity trade. The the pricing generally is not very complex. Owners want to deal in you know outright dollars per day, and the leases are fairly straightforward. You might say I'd I'd like a, a ship for six to nine months, or I'd like a ship for a year. Uh, you're able to negotiate some optional periods uh, generally with the owner, um, but. You know, if you've bought in a weaker period uh, and, the, and the market firms, you, you know, you're long that ship just like the, the, the actual owners are. Um, but it cuts both ways. Generally, as the, as the market firms, the leasing, uh, the leasing rates go up. Owners want uh, a higher rate and they want it for longer. And these markets correct dramatically. So uh, you could be leasing a ship that is in a very weak spot market very quickly thereafter. So generally, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to be as conservative as possible. So who do you find, who do you see out there that is investing in ships, investing in the shipping industry? Is this, um, is this banks and big funds? Is it high net worth individuals? Where do you traditionally see a lot of this interest come from on the investor side? Investor so, interest and people that are taking exposure aren't necessarily interchangeable. Um, you know, what you've seen over the last, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years, there was, a, there was a big run up before the financial crash. And that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of ship ordering. It caused a lot of um, shipyards to be built. And it it created a place for the publicly traded companies um, to fill a larger role. You know, ship owning was, tr you know, originally uh, state-owned companies or private Greek families, um, you know, Norwegians. And when the public markets were able to get more involved in buying vessels, uh, owning vessels, um, they became one of the, you know, the real drivers in the market. They were doing it with bank financing, they were taking loans, uh, the market crashed, uh, a lot of owners had a difficult time, someone bankrupt. And you know, to fill the gap when a lot of traditional financing, bank financing has stepped out, the people that you're seeing step in now are, um, are, are their private individuals, private family companies, that are saying, you know, I like the cash on cash return of these assets. But you're finding that 
the, the major influence in this market right now are uh, Chinese leasing banks, which like the yield on the sale leaseback transactions and are really the, the incremental capital which has come into this market. There's, uh, they're, they're really filling the gap where a lot of traditional lenders have, have stepped back. And, you know, and then from the private investor side, you know, these are fairly big ticket, um, you know, transactions. Uh, a single vessel can cost anywhere from, you know, 100 to $130 million. Uh, mm-hmm. A secondhand vessel, you know, depending on the, the size, you know, steps down every 10 or $20 million. So uh, some of the, um, you know, larger private equity um, and, you know, hedge fund types had operating vehicles where they came in, purchased some vessels, and then either sold out of them or looked to transition uh, through, you know, reverse mergers or uh, into the public markets without, you know, executing an IPO. Did you ever see any of these big sort of private equity groups buying ships or, or shipping companies as a way to help integrate other companies or other operations they might have when they, it's, I, I suppose it's not dissimilar from, uh, you know, the fully integrated traders or the oil companies that, you know, have their own fleet. Do you ever see this more on the finance side, uh, big funds buying up these industries to help facilitate other to create synergies in the companies that they own. Is that something that happens very often? Uh, I wouldn't say that that happens often, Um, you know, generally because uh, these types of, you know, activities tend to focus on themselves more. And, you know, the the owners of the ships want to make as much as possible for the ships, which generally goes directly against what the traders want to do at another company. Right. Um, But... But you have seen some of the more interesting transactions. A, a notable one this year was one of the largest trading houses, uh, Trafigura, um, yep. did a merger with you know one of the largest uh, um, tanker companies. And it it wasn't a merger; it was more of a um, the tanker company Frontline sold them. Uh, no, no, Frontline bought the ships in exchange for giving Trafigura a number of shares in Frontline. So. Uh, they remained two independent companies, but there was an economic interest that was exchanged, which, you know, that makes uh, Trafigura happy for, you know, Frontline to uh, have great earnings, right? So it's a bit of an offsetting position, but mm-hmm. synergy is, uh, it's hard to pull off sometimes with with these things. I guess the the inverse to that question then is, have you seen the big trading houses or oil and gas companies, uh, I guess, decoupling their full integration and using outside uh, shippers as opposed to having it all internally and integrated? Well, you know, I'd say in general, um, there's not a single solution that anyone uses. Uh, there's generally, uh, you know, a composite or a bit of a portfolio approach people will take, even if they think the market is just too weak or too high, a percentage of the, of the trading houses or anyone that's moving cargoes will say, you know, I want to have 20 to 30% of my movements on ships that we control under time charter. Mm-hmm. And I want 20 to 30% of our movements to be under 
a contract of a freightment, which, you know, there's a, there's also a way that you can not necessarily commit to a lease on a ship, but not be so opportunistic where you're only chartering vessels on a spot basis. You can go to an owner and say, you know, I'm going to move 10 cargoes this year. And because, you know, uh, because I'm going to give you that certainty, because I'm going to buy in bulk, what kind of, what kind of deal can you do for me? And an owner might say, I like that. I'll do it at a, you know, I'll do it at the market minus 5% or 10% or I'll move all of them for X rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a COAs or contracts of a freightment might be a component and then just spot charters. And then those, you know, that, that's where every company is going to be different. More conservative may take more fixed rate uh, for a shorter period. And, and generally, those are the three uh, levers people are dealing with in order to manage their exposure. But as far as owning steel, uh, divesting from steel, um, you know, those are always going to layer into, you know, what people or companies are trying to do to manage their, their freight exposure. So when we first started talking, you mentioned that you guys had put together one or several SPVs that allowed investors to come in. Uh, you know, it's, it sounded like to me in a smaller way where they're able to get exposure to the industry without having uh, to put down the capital required to lease a ship outright or buy a ship outright. Is, is that true? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's, that's something that we focused on where, uh, you know, when you look at different ways to get exposure into these markets and, and real clear, pure exposure to, you know, to rates and volatility, when, when you're buying the public entities inherently, you know, you're also purchasing uh, the debt the fleet has on it and the, you know, the corporate structure of the management team where our model is asset light. And we say, you know, through these SPVs, we're going to rateably lease vessels and we're always going to be taking on length in this market and we're not going to over we're not going to say we're going to lease a ship for five years today and hope that the market is you know much higher we're going to rateably be committing for six months to a year to a number of ships again and again and again and those vessels will be thrown into that pool of vessels that create that average result so that we're rateably buying leasing exposure in this market, which makes us wear the same hat as a traditional owner, but we're managing the risks by not having uh, too distant a horizon on the rates that we commit to, but also right. putting them into this large pool of assets, which are earning all the time. And then the, you know, the ships are ranked. Some might, you know, one ship might burn less fuel than another. One might uh, lift more cargo than another. So, you know, the vessels are equitably compensated for, you know, the, the, the better performers or not. So, um, and that's something that resonated with our investors. So we have a lot of listeners that run family offices or work at major funds. And if there are people out there that are, thinking of getting into the shipping business or rather investing into the shipping industry, what, what should they be considering? Um, you know, what are the red flags that they should be looking out for? What should be on the top of their mind before 
delving into this in an area where they might not necessarily be an expert? No, it's, it's a very technical um, industry. And the, the nature of it is, um, it's still very, you know, um, for lack of a better word, old school. It's very much about relationships and it's very much over the counter talking, negotiating, and, you know, managing uh, counterparties and, you know, counterparty exposures. So um, it isn't just here are the rates and, you know, what's the market there. You need to make sure that the vessels that you're dealing with have the right technical management, you know, and those are the people that, you know, those are the owners or the, or the, the crew and the safety systems that are saying, you know, if you're going to put, you know, $200 million worth of crude on this vessel, uh, we're going to make sure that it is very safely and carefully transported from point A to point B. And if something goes wrong, we're going to deal with it the right way. Um, you know, the insurances that need to be in place, the, uh, the technical management, the safety systems, but then also making sure that once you buy the ship, and even if you cover all of those other bases, that you are properly marketing the vessels or the right management team is marketing them. You know, there's, um, everyone knows the oil majors, but you know, these are, there's generally independent companies, which will spring up from time to time. There's uh, different geopolitical risks, which will present themselves. Sanctions could come in. How do you deal with that? Uh, how would you deal with a counterparty default? All of these things are fairly perilous and you're not just dealing with the laws of your local state. Uh, yeah. These are, um, you're cutting across a lot of different jurisdictions. Um, you're cutting across also, you know, many times uh, maritime law. So y- you can see that you, you're constantly exposed to a number of different exposures on the legal and execution side, which just, you know, if you want to get into it, uh, just make sure that, um, you know, the management team or, or the consultants or, you know, whoever you're kind of dealing with know what they're doing. You know, this sounds actually a lot like mining. Um, you know, a lot of times I have seen uh, generalist investors and, and often very successful generalist investors get into the mining business, either, uh, you know, investing in a company or buying a mine outright, thinking that it seems pretty simple, right? You pull rocks out of the ground, you crush them up and pull out gold and you sell the gold. Uh, And, you know, it's very easy if you're not from a technical background and not immersed in that space to simplify the process and get burnt very, very badly. And, you know, we see that again and again and again. And that's why there are so many mining uh, specialty funds and specialty investors that help, help bigger investors manage their capital in this space. Are there... Have you? I guess I have two questions. Do you see that often in shipping as well? People come in and they they hurt themselves a bit because they underappreciate these risks. And are there groups that specialize in this type of investing that people work with or could work with? Well, you know, from the uh, most of the vessels that we charter, and you know, I can't speak for vessels that would be much smaller or you know, a a lower outright ticket. But, you know, when you're talking about the kind of the barrier to entry to being, you know, 25 to $30 million, um, Mm -hmm. generally, um, 
you're not seeing that collection of um, of capital or just a single person, you know, purchasing that without a, a, a decent degree of, of due diligence already being put in or, you know, some type of management team that has some type of credentials, which have, uh, have already been kind of established in the market. Um, as far as, you know, are, are we seeing people come in and, you know, really having a bad experience? Uh, the bad experience generally comes from, you know, poor timing. And that's, that's really, you know, the, the money in shipping is made from buying or entering at the right time because, you know, once it moves, it, it moves dramatically. And, and that's really uh, where kind of the, the, the dramatic upside is. Um, but almost every one of the, the major brokerage houses now, and these are freight brokers, um, has some type of uh, capital services team. And, you know, uh, bouncing off of any one of those, there's publicly traded uh, tanker uh, brokers. Um, you know, you can look them up. Clarkson's um, is, is one of them in Europe. And, and there's a number in the U.S. Um, that also have, you know, uh, capital services teams, which will consult or, you know, say, hey, this is, you know, uh, these guys know what they're doing or not. And, and then really just, you know, uh, more like anything, just getting out there and meeting people in the industry and, you know, uh, seeing, you know, who, who's good or not is really what it comes down to. All right. Well, RJ, I want to be respectful of your time now. And I know you're, you're in New York and still got a bit left to do this day. So thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and, and go through this with us. If people want to learn more about you or Molnar Shipping, where's the best place for them to, to check that out? Uh, MolnarShipping.com, which uh, M-J-O-L-N-E-R, Shipping.com uh, is, you know, our management business. And, um, you know, anyone that goes to the site can, can reach us quite easily. And, uh, you know, uh, happy to hear from anyone that's uh, interested in getting involved in shipping or or finding a, a good way to put capital to use so all right well great well thank you very much for taking the time today all right thanks jamie thanks for listening to another episode of the resource insider podcast if you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for resource insider now Thank you.